Hello everyone, my name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 6th of November. Our podcast is back to normal this week after a couple of weeks of doing something different. We have the usual mix of music including songs by Cat Stevens and Carrie Underwood. Some notices. We meet for worship at 10.30 this Sunday. This will include our regular This Time Tomorrow slot and also a celebration of the Lord's Supper and of course all are welcome. We meet for tea plus chat plus prayer at the home of Colin and Sue Owen on Tuesday afternoon at 2.30 and all are welcome there and if anyone needs transport please do let me know. Who Let the Dads Out, our group for preschool children and their dads, granddads, etc. meets on Saturday morning, the 12th of November at 10 o'clock. And finally, the church magazine for November is available in all the usual places, including online. And as I mentioned last week, that the online version has been split into two parts. So make sure you listen to both. And now our call to worship. Spirit of God, moving over the deep, dark waters bringing order out of chaos in the beginning of all things, bring us your peace. Come, Holy Spirit. Lowly dove, winging your way over the waters of the flood, bringing signs of a new beginning for the world, bring us your hope. Come, Holy Spirit. Spirit, descending as a dove over the waters of the Jordan, bringing the approval of God at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, bring us your blessing. Come, Holy Spirit. Creating, redeeming, sustaining, inspiring, restoring, empowering. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. And your loving care But now 
God who is older than time, God who is deeper than the oceans, God who is higher than the heavens. As we come together to worship you, may we sense eternity flooding in to fill this time to overflowing, washing clean all that lies in the past, filling with your spirit every corner of this place, every nook and cranny of our hearts and minds, enabling us to praise you as we should and serve you as we ought, bearing us onward, upward, on the rising tide of your coming kingdom. In Jesus' name, Amen. God of life and wisdom, forgive us when we avoid asking questions that will help us grow, when we settle for answers that are comfortable rather than challenging, when we do not trust you with our lives and our deaths, but allow fear to fester and uncertainty to undermine our faith. Bless us, we pray, with confidence and courage and the ability to live with mystery as we follow in the steps of Jesus, his disciples and all the saints. Living God, you understand our fear of death and you forgive us. You understand how hard it is to let go of life and you support us. You understand when we allow our world to cloud our vision of your kingdom. You understand you forgive, and one day you will call us home. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptised him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart, and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved Son, and you bring me great joy. The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan for forty days. He was out among the wild animals, and angels took care of him. The passage that I read today begins by telling us that Jesus came south from Nazareth, his hometown, to meet with John the Baptist, who was baptising people in the Jordan, on the edge of the Judean desert. Mark dispenses with the toing and froing we read elsewhere in the New Testament about whether or not John should baptise Jesus, or whether it should be the other way around, as all he tells us is that Jesus was baptised by John, and that's it. Then Mark also tells us that this was the occasion when God the Father acknowledged that Jesus was his Son, and God's Spirit came upon Jesus. The brevity of Mark's writing means that we are more aware than we might otherwise have been that the period of 40 days in the wilderness that Jesus experienced was part of God's purpose. The Spirit that came upon Jesus when he was baptised is the same spirit who drove Jesus out into the wilderness. For many years I've found the story of these temptations a little troubling. To treat this period of temptation as something that Jesus had to tick off on a to-do list surely doesn't do justice to what Jesus experienced in the rest of his ministry, and especially in the last week of his life on earth. If Jesus is who we believe him to be, 
that is, no less and no more human than we are, then these experiences in the desert must surely have been his experiences throughout his life. For Jesus, the baptism, the temptations and the ministry are all connected and so perhaps the same is true for us. This is not so controversial in that it is a fairly traditional Christian idea that we are at our most vulnerable to temptation when we are living out our calling most successfully. In other words, the devil is most dangerous when he is himself a wounded creature. This comes across well in C.S. Lewis's classic story, The Screwtape Letters. However, what if we focus more closely on Mark's version of the story and try to forget all those elaborate accounts that Matthew and Luke tell us? Now we get a picture of these three parts of the story being three parts of the same plan. Jesus is baptised and God affirms him as his son. This is followed by the Spirit coming upon him who then drives Jesus into the wilderness in preparation for what is to come next, his ministry. Of course, this was an event that was specific to Jesus, and yet baptism is very much part of Christian practice. So let's see what we can learn about our lives and our relationship with God from this story. First, we can take some comfort from Mark's honesty about how Jesus ended up in the wilderness. We don't generally enter our wilderness times of our own volition, nor do we feel gently led there by God's Holy Spirit. We are dumped there. Most of us know that experience at some point in our lives, the shattering of a relationship, the sudden loss of a job or of health or home, our world falling to pieces around us in an echo of what happened to Job. Any of those things can land us in a desolate place or land a desolate place within us. Mark doesn't tell us much about Jesus' inner struggles until we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, where there Jesus agonises over his impending death and over the inability of his closest disciples to share his struggle. Instead, the Gospel according to Mark primarily focuses on an external conflict, Jesus' ongoing battle with the powers of evil, represented here by Satan in the wilderness, the bell rings for round one of this cosmic bout. In the Old Testament, Abraham was tested with what seems like too much to ask of anyone, the sacrifice of his son Isaac. For 40 years in the wilderness, God provided daily bread for the children of Israel, but they still came up short in their struggle to trust their future to God. In Mark's story, we are given the impression that Jesus' testing by Satan is ongoing throughout the 40-day period. Like the person trying to get a better mobile phone signal around the house, it's as if God kept asking Jesus, Can you hear me now? Can you hear me say that you are my beloved son now, when you see that this struggle with Satan isn't just a one-time event, but something ongoing? Can you hear me now that you know that unlike Isaac, you will not be spared, that you will be offered up for the sin of the world? Can you hear me in the angels I send to wait on you? Can you see and hear in them the assurance that I will sustain you? Can you hear me now? God also asks us. Can we hear that the one who was with Jesus is also with us for the long haul, even when we are in the wilderness? 
Can we recognize the angels God sends to attend to us? Can we hear God's call to us to be the angels who accompany others in their lonely and desolate places? What are we to make of the wild beasts that are with Jesus in the wilderness? They represented the real dangers of survival in that setting with their beady eyes staring at Jesus out of the darkness as he warmed himself by the fire. There's another possibility. Someone speaking about this passage has written that in Jewish tradition, the battle with the wild animals began with the fall. But unlike Adam, Jesus withstood his temptations and thereby restored paradise. In his faithfulness, Jesus is already seen as the one who ushers in the kingdom of peace that Isaiah foretold as a sign of the messianic age. The coming of Jesus was the beginning of God's new order that would end with the leopard lying down with the lamb. God's Spirit drove Jesus to continued encounters with Satan that finally culminated on the cross. Again, Mark tells us that Jesus utters only one word from the cross, a cry born out of complete desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are words from the Psalms, Psalm 22, where the psalmist twice speaks of being encircled by wild animals. Jesus enters the worst wilderness of them all, a sense of abandonment by God. We sometimes know that feeling too. Can you hear me now? God the Father asks. For a moment, Jesus can't. He bears the silence of God as he bears our sins, so that for us, forsakenness and abandonment will not be the last word. I'd also like us to consider what it meant for Jesus to be the obedient son. Brian McLaren is a contemporary Christian author and pastor whose words I find interesting. It was he who played with the metaphor of evangelism as dance to which I often return. In a more recent book, he asks, Kingdom of God is so last century. Are there new ways to talk about Jesus' good news? In this new work, he adds five more metaphors to that of dance. And the particular one I'm going to mention is to consider the kingdom of God as the dream of God. This is what he writes. The call to faith is the call to trust God and God's dreams enough to realign our dreams with God's, to dream our little dreams within God's big dream. The call to receptivity is the call to continually receive God's dreams, a process that seems to be a lifelong one. The call to baptism is the call to publicly identify with God's dream and to disassociate with all competing isms or ideologies that claim to provide the ultimate dream, including nationalism, consumerism, hedonism, conservatism, liberalism, and so on. And the call to practice is the call to learn to live the way God dreams for us to live. I like this idea of aligning ourselves with God's dream. Dreams often clash with reality, but the cost of discipleship is to live in a world that often seeks to crush dreams. To live the dream is to ignore the frustrations, the failures, the incomplete projects, the seemingly futile attempts to change a world with very different values, and still to live the dream. 
to live the dream is, to borrow from the title of a book from a few years ago, to be Easter people in a Good Friday world. To live the dream is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus descends into the baptismal waters as an opening act of messianic obedience. Obedience may not be the most glamorous of the Christian virtues, but it's the predominant virtue shown by Jesus when he was baptized. There was a famous writer who spoke to a group of students about her work. In the questions afterwards, someone asked, how do you get in the mood to write? In the mood, she asked. Well, let's see. I have breakfast, then I sit down at my typewriter, and I write. I'm a writer, that's what I do. I write. Obedience, which was once honoured by Victorian moralists, has fallen on hard times. Obey the rules, be subservient to your ideals. This seems a very inferior moral motivation. What ought we to do? Go with your feelings, be spontaneous. You are a naturally good person. Do what comes naturally. Who does anything out of dull obedience? John Wesley had a vision of turning ordinary 18th century people into saints. Wesley knew enough about ordinary people to know that it was too much to expect sainthood from people solely on the basis of their feelings. Therefore, Wesley taught them good habits. Obedience was the path to holiness. There is a letter by a dear distressed soul to Wesley. She says that the fire for Jesus that once burned bright in her has now cooled. She no longer believes with the initial fervour that once characterised her faith. Wesley responds without one ounce of pastoral sensitivity, saying something to the effect of, Well, madam, you say that you are rising at six to study scripture. You may be the sort of person who needs to arise at five. You say you visit in the prison once every week. You're obviously the sort of superficial gentlewoman who must visit the prisoners thrice a week. No spiritual hand-holding. No exhortation to search for the hero inside yourself. Just obey the rules. Do as you've been taught and faith will come to you. So Wesley defines being born again mainly in terms of life transformed through obedience. If you've ever been in love, you will probably have done many things that you would never have done on your own, things which really bring you very little enjoyment in themselves, all because they reflect the wishes of the one whom you love. I know men who will accompany their wives to ballet even though it bores them stiff, and they will do so in loving obedience to someone they love. Obedience given in love is much more than just obeying the rules. I'm going to finish by offering three less obvious suggestions for what baptism is. First, baptism is a political act. Obviously, this doesn't mean that it's connected to any political party, but it does mean that in baptism one is making a statement and being aligned with a particular position. This particular baptism is a very dramatic act. The heavens are torn open, God's Spirit descends and God speaks. This is not a series of events with which we are familiar at baptisms in our experience. And yet, what happened when Jesus was baptised is an indication that this is precisely what happens when anyone is baptised. 
like the veil in the temple that is torn apart as a symbol of the breaking down of the barrier between heaven and earth, so in baptism the veil between God and the one baptized is broken down. There is no limit to God's purpose for your life. It is an eternal purpose. We might think that baptism is a statement that only we are making, but it is also, and more importantly, a statement that God is making too. Baptism is a political act. It's about taking sides. God takes sides with Jesus, and Jesus takes sides with us. Secondly, baptism is dangerous. When we were at my last church, we baptised a number of people in the river that flows through Oxford. There's an ancient meadow with commoners grazing rights, and the Thames meanders through it. On a number of summer afternoons, we baptised people in water with the congregation standing and singing on the bank. Before we did this, for the first time, Nick, the church secretary, and I went to try it out. We had no idea how deep the water was and what the current is like. And it turned out that there was a sudden drop in the bottom and there was quite a strong current. However, knowing this made it easier to manage, although there was one occasion where Nick lost his footing and ended up swimming back to the bank. Open water is dangerous. There are usually signs by rivers warning against swimming. It might be because of Wiles disease, unseen hazards below the waterline, or the shock from jumping into cold water. In Bible times, people were very aware of the dangers of water. The seas appeared to be bottomless and home to real and imagined sea monsters. They were a symbol of the chaos of the first day of creation and the flood that Noah and his family survived. Baptism is specifically dangerous, not because of the water, but because our baptism is a symbol of obedience to a God who will call us to go to places, both geographical and in our heads and in our relationships, that are unfamiliar. The heavens torn open mean that God is somehow with us in a new way. Not that God wasn't with us before, but that something new is being born, a different kind of relationship dangerous but at the same time comforting. The wildness of the baptismal river is not tamed by the baptistry. God's words, you are my son, my child, with you I am well pleased, promise us a wild ride into the current of God's justice, God's passion and God's mercy into the wilderness and beyond. Thirdly, baptism changes us. It's mildly interesting to notice that the majority of fictional country music singers tend to be washed-up, recovering alcoholics. Robert Duval won an Oscar for his performance as one such character in Tender Mercies. There's a scene in the film in which Mac, Duval's character, and Sonny, the son of the kindly woman who's taken him in, have been baptised. And there follows this conversation. Driving home after the baptism, Sonny says to Mac, well, we done it, Mac. We was baptised. Peering into the truck's rearview mirror, Sonny studies himself for a moment. Everybody said I'd feel like a changed person. Do you feel like a changed person? Not yet, replies Mac. You don't look any different, Mac. Do you think I look any different? Not yet, answers Mac. There is an element here of being unable to see for ourselves any change that might have been effected in our lives in baptism. 
where once they were the province of sailors or men who'd spent time in prison, tattoos are very much in vogue today. Baptism can be considered to be a permanent yet invisible tattoo. We may not be able to see this tattoo, but if we peer into the rearview mirror and look back at our lives, we might find that we can see this watermark that reminds us of the day when God called us a beloved child with whom he was pleased. Baptism is a dangerous political act. It is an invisible yet indelible mark upon us. What three better reasons could there be for doing it? It's not time to make a change Just relax, take it easy You're still young, that's your fault There's so much you have to know Find a girl, settle down If you want, you can marry Look at me, I am old but unhappy was once like you are now And I know that it's not easy To be calm When you found something going on But take your time Think a lot Why think of everything you've got For you will still be here tomorrow But your dreams may not Explain when I do, he turns away again. It's always been the same, same old story. From the moment I could talk, I was ordered to listen. Now there's a way, and I know that I have to go away. I know I have to go. Slowly, you're still young. That's your fault. There's so much you have to go through. Find a girl, settle down. If you want, you can marry. Look at me. I am old, but I'm happy. All the times that I've cried, keeping all the things I knew inside. It's hard, but it's hard. 
Let us pray. It is hard to understand your acceptance, Lord. In a society that seems to judge first, ask questions later, your open, all-encompassing welcome and acceptance is hard to take. Perhaps because we are so judgmental, we can't believe in a God who accepts us and doesn't judge us. What we do, what we wear, what we say, is open to such scrutiny that your challenge to put aside our fears, prejudices and assumptions becomes difficult. This is one of the big temptations we face today. We ask that we will recognise your Spirit's presence in our lives, in our response to your call to accept, to welcome, to be open. Lord, you love us. We don't know why you do. No matter how much we make a mess of things, you are still there, waiting, watching, ready to welcome. Thank you. For those who feel that all that was precious to them has been washed away, Lord, remember them. For those who feel that they are lost in a wilderness beset by temptation, Lord, remember them. For those who have never heard your voice speaking to them, Lord, remember them. For those who feel sullied and in need of cleansing, Lord, remember them. For those who need to know what way they should go next, Lord, remember them. For those who feel that they have no more strength to go on, Lord, remember them. May they hear your good news. May they know that you are near at hand. May they know your spirit descending on them. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. His 
dying breath has brought me to life I know that it is finished oh, oh, oh. I will not boast in anything No gifts, no power, no last song is Don't Forget to Remember Me, sung by Carrie Underwood. But first, a final prayer. May you know God breathing his peace over the troubled depths of your soul. May you know that Jesus is with you on your journey in the week to come. May you know the Holy Spirit strengthening and sustaining you this day and forevermore. Amen.
Small sometimes. It- 